Welcome to the Old Testament Reading Plan Podcast. I'm your host, Joel, and today we're focusing on 1 Samuel 5 through 10. You can find and subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. All the links are in the show notes. And if questions come up during the course of your reading, please feel free to ask them at bit.ly slash ask ot. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash capital A lowercase sk hyphen capital O capital T. The story of Saul, which begins partway through our reading this week, is a story, I think, about how power affects people. Truly, the story of how power affects people is the story of Samuel, Saul, and David all throughout First and Second Samuel. Each of them is entrusted with the power of leadership, and it transforms this power of leadership into each of them in unexpected ways. Ultimately, Any position of power and authority receives its power and authority, whether directly or indirectly, from the people who give it and from the God who gives it. In Israel, the link between the prophet's authority, the link between the king's authority to God's authority, that's explicit. In our culture, the link is a little bit more implicit and often based on skills or talents or some sort of popular acclaim. The trust that this structure will produce a leader worth following ends up grounding the leader's authority and power in something transcendent, which is what I mean by all authority and power goes back to God, ultimately. However, when we draw near to this sort of transcendence, it changes us. There's an effect that receiving power has on us, just as there's an effect that being in the vicinity of power has on us. The phrase that you may have heard, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely, that names this truth. So when we find ourselves in the orbit of someone who's experiencing the effects of power, we also risk being affected. We risk perhaps being unwilling to call out issues of character with the person in power, for example. Uh, Even in the arc narrative portion of this week's reading, we see the Philistines experience the effects of proximity to power with regard to the power of the Ark of the Covenant. Throughout the books of Samuel, we will be reminded over and over again about the innate fallenness of human beings. Seizing power on our own terms, trying to play God ourselves, this has been the sin that has broken human beings from the beginning. We see this temptation in a variety of contexts, realizing as people of good character fail again and again when they receive power, that perhaps power and authority isn't good for the human soul. No matter how important anyone becomes, it is necessary, abundantly so, for them to share authority, to share power, instead of grasping for more. This is the meta-narrative throughout 1st and 2nd Samuel, and uh, we we see this explicitly in some of Samuel's uh, uh, rhetoric about and against kings. So with all this in mind, let's get into the text. We open with a continuation of the Ark narrative from last week's reading. The Philistines have not only defeated the Israelite, Israelite army, excuse me, but have also taken the Ark of the Covenant as evidence of their God's superiority, their God's dominance over the God of Israel. Now, the Philistine God is called Dagon, and they bring the Ark into Dagon's temple and put it at Dagon's feet as if the God of Israel is bowing to Dagon. 
Now, there's some confusion among scholars around who or what exactly Dagon is. Historically, Dagon has been portrayed as a fish god, uh, thinking, you know, the Hebrew root dag means fish, and so Dagon is probably a derivative of that. And this also aligns with the Philistines being a coastal people who arrived on the coast of the Promised Land by sailing across the Mediterranean. There, there may be this affinity they have or this um, dependence on fish or marine life. Other uh, scholars want to name Dagon as some sort of fertility god. Uh, whatever the case, after the Ark humiliates Dagon by causing the god's statue to fall face down with its hands and its head cut off, the Philistines begin having second thoughts about whether it was a good idea to bring the Ark of the Covenant into their temple. See, the removal of the hand and the head, that is, um, it's very similar to how prisoners of war were treated, meaning that the Ark is clearly communicating that the Philistines and their god are under Yahweh's authority. Additionally, there is this plague that the Ark brings to each town it arrives in. Some scholars believe this is an early record of the bubonic plague. Some of the signs are there that, you know, the Philistines make these statues of tumors and mice. And it's thought perhaps that the mice were actually rats, um, which is how the plague was spread, at least in Europe during the Black Plague. Um, and, and the tumors, uh, scholars, some scholars think, are the bulbous inflamed lymph nodes that the bubonic plague causes. Now, some people get hung up on this scientific explanation and, and really need to find a scientific explanation, much like some folks get hung up on that with the Exodus. And I think that it's neat to do that, but if you spend too much time on that, it kind of misses the point. Because regardless of whether there's also a scientific explanation, the Philistines understand this to be the hand of Yahweh punishing them for their treatment of the Ark of the Covenant. And in this way, the plagues brought upon the Philistines, there's a faint echo here of the plagues against Egypt. There could conceivably be natural explanations for these. It's fine for there to be natural explanations, but given the timing of these plagues, whether they're natural or not hardly matters. And the Philistines kind of make a similar argument in the text. They say, well, there's a possibility this is all just random chance and a string of bad luck. Uh, but... Let's, let's have a plan to determine that. So they hatch this plan. They take two cows that have never pulled a cart. In fact, these cows had just recently had calves, and so they were milk cows. And, and these, these cows are sort of by nature wanting to be with their calves. And so they pitch the idea that if the cows bring the cart toward Israel away from their calves, it's clearly the work of the Lord of Yahweh who is afflicting them. The cows would need to go entirely against nature for this to happen because they'd have to go away from their calves who are yearning for more milk. And, and you know, that's exactly what happens here. Uh, there are echoes here of how Hannah dedicated Samuel to the Lord's service, that the work of God superseded um, the conviction of a mother to hang on to her son. In fact, the calves of the cows in Hebrew here are called their sons, which almost never is the case in the Old Testament. Oftentimes, there's there's you know a specific word for calves, not calling them sons like we would humans, and that makes this link still more explicit. So Israel receives the ark back, um, and and when they get it back, they celebrate. They take the cart, they take the cows, they burn them, sacrificing them as a Thanksgiving offering. But several folks look in the ark. Perhaps they want to make sure the Philistines didn't take anything out of the ark. Uh, whatever the purpose, 
Turns out it doesn't matter. These people are struck down dead. Now, the Bible is silent as to whether their faces melted like in Indiana Jones, uh, but in all seriousness, we do see the risks here of being too close to power, too close to transcendence. It can cause our bodies and our souls to be deformed, as it did to the Philistines. It can cause our deaths, like it did to the Israelites who looked into the ark. Now, not all deformity, not all physical handicap, and not all death comes from being too close to transcendence. This is kind of a side effect of us being fallen creatures when we get close to transcendence. Sometimes death, deformity, these things happen um, because our world is fallen. Uh, it doesn't mean that the person who experiences the death or deformity has sinned. Uh, and I want to name that because God's power and authority do have an effect on us, particularly when we're trying to harness God's power and authority for our own ends. God's power and authority can consume us, but this isn't the case for all people who are consumed. This isn't the case for all people who suffer. Now, if we submit to God's will, if we allow God's power and authority to direct us, we'll have an opportunity to flourish because that's what we were created to do. This does not mean our lives will be free from suffering, but it does mean that we will suffer less than had we not submitted to God, had we not allowed for God's authority and power to direct us, because that's how we as humans are wired. an interesting position in Israel's history. In some sense, he's the final judge. In another sense, he offers a model of how to serve as a prophet. But in still another sense, he almost sought to function as a king, not in name, but in actuality. Samuel is, is this strange bridge um, character between the time of the judges and the time of the kings. And despite warning the Israelites away from trusting themselves to a king instead of to the Lord, he tried to pass along the mantle of judge to his sons, wicked though they were. The co this compromises Samuel's strident anti-monarch stance and his strident speeches against the monarchy. The people of Israel may be wondering to what degree is he against the idea of a king because it will take the people's trust away from God, and to what degree is he against it because it will put him and his sons out of power. Samuel, who was the mouthpiece for God's judgment against the house of Eli, emulates the same errors of Eli, clinging to power, discipling his sons poorly. But initially, Samuel offers good counsel. Submit to God, he says to the Israelites. Return to the Lord with your whole heart. In these exhortations, he channels the wisdom written down in Deuteronomy, charging the Israelites to worship, serve, and love the Lord alone. And in doing this, Israel secures a long-lasting victory against the Philistines, aided by God's thunderous divine intervention. It makes sense that Samuel would want to continue this reign. Things are looking up, and Israel's doing well. However, the leaders of Israel realize that Samuel isn't going to be around to direct the people's hearts toward God forever. They want an institution that will regularly and effectively govern, a visible reminder of God's providence and sovereignty. Now Samuel, at least at first, seems dumbfounded by this request. He focuses the attention of the people on all the ways a king would take advantage of them. Again, though, by elevating his sons, 
Samuel has put himself in a precarious position. Is his opposition to Israel's king due to the risk of idolatry? Or is it more because Samuel's power and dynasty would be threatened, potentially diluted? A quick word about uh, the king as idol or the kingship as idolatry. This seems to be the underlying issue throughout Samuel's rhetoric. The Israelites want to, quote-unquote, be like the other nations. There's a peer pressure going on here when they could continue being different than the other nations as God's treasured possession, which is what they were called to be. Additionally, God shares with Samuel that by asking for a king, the people haven't abandoned him as leader, but have forsaken God as leader. There is certainly a sense in which the king would function as a visible image of God, and this is problematic. First, we are all called to be God's image bearers. That's what the creation narrative in Genesis was all about. And second, by elevating the king to first among equals, which is the best of all possible outcomes of a coronation, this does damage to the king and to the people. The people no longer look to God for direction, but to the king. And the king can no longer pursue God primarily, but must maintain the favor of the people. The motivation of the king and, and the people, each of them becomes mixed, and dedication to God is compromised at every level. This, by the way, is sort of the backbone, this error of the reformed priesthood of all believers, saying that we are all called to be image bearers of God, that there are certain people who are called to ordered ministry to serve in specific functions in the church, but that they are not greater than or less than any other member of the church, that the pastor does not have any um, uh, greater access to God than anyone else. Because if the pastor did have a greater access to God, it would lead to idolatry. Now, Samuel's embrace of power has led to his inability to condemn kingship without political and personal motivations. Israel's embrace of power, having crushed the Philistines, has led to their desire to forge ahead on their own without the outdated ways of the past holding them back. Power and authority have negatively affected both the people and the leader, and this is going to lead to a ton of strife that we witness in the books of Samuel. So after Samuel sends the people home, perhaps because he's frustrated, maybe so that he'll have time to find a king, the scene changes to Saul's perspective. Saul is a tall, good-looking man, but as the narrative reveals, he doesn't possess a ton of leadership qualities. His servant is the one throughout this narrative who makes decisions for him. Saul assents without too much convincing. Saul and his servant also seem to be unaware of who exactly this seer, this prophet is, merely just that he was in the area, which suggests that Saul is not sort of up to date on the goings-on in Israel. Now, at first blush, it seems like Samuel has come around with the whole king thing. After all, why would he anoint Saul if he's so opposed to Israel having a monarchy? But it's worth looking more closely at what happens after Saul wakes up from having slept on Samuel's roof. As soon as they run into Samuel, they are carried along by this tidal wave of events. It's like knocking down the first domino. There's no stopping the rest of the dominoes from falling. Saul is suddenly Samuel's guest um, and, and is the guest of honor for, for a dinner with 30 other people. He's welcomed into the, pal into the place Samuel's staying. He's given divine guidance from Samuel himself. And early the next day, the dominoes continue to fall. Saul's anointed, given detailed instructions, and sent to fulfill them. But... Note that Samuel anoints Saul in secret. No other witnesses are present. 
I think this is intentional. Samuel just has just sent Saul's servant away to go on in front of them. So only Samuel and Saul know that Saul is anointed, not as king, notice, but as prince. Second, by giving Saul such detailed directions, Samuel is holding fast to the power that he has. In some sense, Samuel is trying to put Saul on the throne as a puppet king, put him sort of in a double bind, entirely dependent on Samuel's instructions, yet at the same time, Samuel communicates to Saul to do whatever he sees fit to do after giving him all these instructions. It's like Samuel is trying to have his cake and eat it too. There's going to be more fallout from these attempts to control Saul, but from here, Saul joins the prophets for a time on his way to find his donkeys and on his way back home. We're going to see a similar story later in the narrative with the sort of punchline, is Saul too among the prophets? But Saul joining the prophets will take on a negative connotation later in the narrative. Apparently, there was this saying in Israel that had an unknown source. This saying is Saul also among the prophets. And the author of Samuel has cleverly inserted that saying at two key points in the story, suggesting two possible sources for why people would say that. We'll get to the other uh, instance of this saying in a couple weeks. But at this first key juncture, Saul being among the prophets is a sign that God's spirit has come upon Saul with power, sealing his anointing as Israel's first king. This ties even more closely to the time of the judges, where the spirit coming on the judge or seizing the judge would be a sign that that they truly are a judge of Israel. Um, So this spirit is sort of the, the seal of God's approval. So after all this, Samuel again gathers the people. He makes another effort to dissuade them from entrusting the nation to a king, but they're unmoved, so he selects a king. But he does it by lot, and this selection process is eerily reminiscent of how Joshua identified Achan as the one who sinned by carrying off plunder from Jericho back in the book of Joshua. It isn't necessarily a good thing for the lot to land on you, in other words. This is yet another implicit way that Samuel is communicating that a king is not going to be a good thing for Israel. When Saul ultimately is indicated by the lot, he's found hiding among the baggage. And despite this initial resistance, the people make him king. This Saul, who really wanted nothing to do with being king, who, who just wanted to return his father's donkeys, this Saul will be virtually unrecognizable by the end of 1 Samuel. And this is what power can do to a person. It can transform them almost entirely. And I want you to watch for Saul's character to begin shifting in next week's reading in response to Samuel's demands on him. And Saul's character will continue to shift as he begins to try and consolidate power and fears for power to slip away from his grasp. That's all for 1 Samuel 5 through 10. Next week, we're going to read 1 Samuel 11 through 16, and we'll follow Saul's military unification of Israel, the estrangement of Samuel and Saul, and we'll be introduced to a young boy named David as Israel's future king. May God bless you in your reading of Scripture. <laughs>